So we are in Daniel chapter 7, which is sort of the place where things start to pick up. This is the part of the book that everybody gets excited about. I've got the outline of Daniel up on the board behind me. I think you've all seen this before. The book is divided into two sections. first part is in Chaldean. The second part is in Hebrew. This is the last of the Chaldean sections. So when we get to chapter 8, the language will change to Hebrew. Most of the commentaries I've read say that because the first part of it talks about the Gentile kingdoms, and then the second part talks about prophecies of Israel, uh, and that's partially true. The other way you can look at it is the second part is commentary on the visions of the first part. That also works pretty well. And in the chiasm up on the board there, chapter 7 matches with chapter 2. So you have Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2 of the metal statue that's made out of five materials, if you will. Gold, then silver, then bronze, then iron, then iron mixed with clay. And here what we're going to do is we're going to have a prophecy of four empires and they're going to be represented as wild beasts. I will tell you right up front that there is absolutely no consensus as to what these mean. I was studying it this afternoon and I found three completely different interpretations of the prophecies in chapter 7. Two of them I think are plausible. One of them I think is just flat wrong. But the guy that wrote it had some other good insights. He had some neat things to say, but I just absolutely did not agree with his interpretation of the four beasts. With that, we'll start. So I'm in chapter 7 now. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. So, typical understanding of the symbols there is the sea represents the Gentile nations. That isn't the only interpretation, but that's the one I'm going with. The other interpretation, by the way, goes back to Genesis, where you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, but... I'm going to go for the moment with the standard interpretation. Verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. There are two perspectives on the relationship between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. One is that Daniel 2 is the visions of four empires from an earthly perspective, because the vision is given to a Gentile king. The second interpretation is the vision of the same four empires, but this time from God's perspective. And if you look at the chiasm up on the board behind me, you can see how that plays out. So you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, and that gives you four kingdoms, five kingdoms, four and a half, five kingdoms, however you want to describe it from a man's perspective, and then the balancing part of the chiasm here in chapter 7 would be looking at the same thing from a different perspective. For example, when we were doing Revelation, 
couple of years ago. You have seven letters to seven churches in Revelation. Well, there are also seven kingdom parables in the Gospels, and there are also seven pastoral letters that Paul writes. And you can read those very profitably as the same subject seven times from three different time horizons. In the kingdom parables, you have the perspective on these seven subjects from the perspective of Yeshua before he's crucified. In Paul's letters, you have the perspective on those same churches, by the way, as in Revelation, from a pastoral perspective after the resurrection, but for the second coming. And then in the letters in Revelation, you have the perspective now from Yeshua's perspective after his resurrection from the dead as he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So you have the same subject presented three times from three different time horizons. Similarly, this perspective on Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 is you have the same subject from two different perspectives, in this case from a human perspective and from God's perspective. That's point of view number one. Point of view number two is the kingdoms in Daniel 7 have nothing to do with the kingdoms in Daniel 2, and that the kingdoms in Daniel 7 are, in fact, modern, present-day kingdoms. I'll lay out both of these for you so you can see it, and then we'll wait for perspective number three. I'll come back to that in a minute, because it'll make more sense in a minute. So anyway, we have a lion with eagle's wings, and the wings are plucked off, and he was made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of man was given to it. Now, having read the book of Daniel up to this point, it seems entirely reasonable that that's talking about Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, at the time that this vision is given, Nebuchadnezzar has been long dead because we're in the first year of Belshazzar. And we went through the timeline last time of the kings, and Nebuchadnezzar is long gone by this point. So this is history in that perspective. And in that perspective, by the way, the image of Babylon is a lion or a winged lion. And that symbolism shows up all over Babylon. In fairness, it also shows up other places in the world. I mean, it's not unique to Babylon, but it is certainly a symbol that Babylon did use. And of course, when Nebuchadnezzar had his wings plucked, literally, and was made to crawl on all fours like an ox and eat grass, and then was given his mind again. And you can see how that perspective just absolutely fits the symbolism there. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. In the perspective of this being a commentary on Daniel 2, This beast, the bear, if you will, becomes Medea Persia. As you remember from last time, Belshazzar's feast, the Medes and the Persians captured and conquered Babylon. The Medes are basically in the area that is now northern Iran, and the Persians are in the area that is now southern Iran. As time went on, the Persians became more powerful which is the symbol of the bear being on one side with one side lifted up. So in this view, the Persian Empire is half of the bear and it is raised up above the other one and will eventually absorb 
the Medes. And the three ribs are the three kingdoms that the Medeo Persian Empire conquered. And they are Lydia, Syria, and Egypt. So as the Medeo Persian Empire raised up, they did in fact conquer three other empires in becoming an empire themselves. So that's the perspective of this is a commentary on chapter two. An alternative view on this, with which I do not agree, is that that is the Medes, period, not the Medes and the Persians. And that second perspective is the Persians then become the leopard with four wings. And then the terrible beast becomes Alexandria and Greece. I don't happen to find that particular perspective especially persuasive, but it is a perspective that you can find out there. So the two perspectives are Babylon, Medeo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome, which is the one I find fairly persuasive. An alternative is Babylon, the Medes, the Persians, and then the Greeks, with no mention of Rome. And that particular perspective is from the perspective that Daniel was written late. Did I go into the dating of Daniel with you guys? Let's take a minute and do that. Daniel is so precise in describing the events under Greek conquest and the time of Antiochus Epiphanes that most modern biblical scholars believe that Daniel was in fact written about 200 B.C. as opposed to about 450 B.C. when it says it was written. In that perspective, what this is, is something that is written as the Jews under the Maccabees are throwing off the Syrians under Antiochus Epiphanes. And so all of this is written as sort of a revisionist history, if you will, to buck up the troops and rally morale and all that kind of stuff and say this has all been prophesied. But in fact, in that perspective, this was not written until the time of the Maccabees and so is basically history told in a prophetic style. And if that's your perspective on the book, then the four empires stop with Greece because that's where we have our problem. So under that perspective, you then have Babylon, you have the Medes, you have the Persians, and then you have the Greeks. And that's really all the book is talking about from that perspective. I don't find that perspective especially persuasive at all. I don't think it's right. But understand that that is a standard perspective, and it is a perspective that you'll get if you read commentaries by people who believe in, for example, the documentary hypothesis of the Bible. I'm just mentioning it because it's out there, not because I find it particularly persuasive. Two things that militate against that perspective is, one, Daniel is in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint was written before the time of the Maccabees. The second thing that militates against that is in the Gospels, Yeshua talks about Daniel as a prophet. So he says, as is written by Daniel the prophet, and then goes on. So Yeshua himself, who of course is 200 years after the Maccabees, regards the book of Daniel as prophetic. 
those two pieces of evidence would sway me that the book of Daniel was written when it says it was written. If you read commentaries or talk to people from liberal churches or something like that, you may run into that perspective. So it's, I think, important that you know about it. We did the bear, and the two perspectives there are the bear is the Median Empire, no Persians, and my perspective and the standard perspective is it is the combination Medeo-Persian Empire. Verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And the standard interpretation here is the leopard with the four wings and the four heads is Greece. And you all know the history of the Greek Empire. Under Alexander, the Greeks went through the Persians like a dose of salts. They just flattened them in no time. Then Alexander himself died at a very young age without leaving any heirs and without leaving a will. His empire was divided among his four generals. So you have four heads and four wings. And a leopard with wings, a leopard is a fast animal. Flying leopard is even faster. And of course the Greeks were very fast as they went through the Persian Empire. Alexander conquered the known world, and I don't have the number in front of me, but just a very short time. He died in his early 30s, and by that time he had conquered the known world. But in the liberal perspective, the leopard would be the Persians. Verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. The fourth beast is not categorized. So you have a lion, a mythological lion. Well, lions with wings are mythological beasts, but you get a recognizable lion. In the second one, you have a bear, recognizable beast. In the third one, you have a leopard. Again, a mythological leopard with wings and foreheads and all that, but recognizably a leopard. This beast is not categorized as anything. It's not a dinosaur. It's not a tiger. It's not a lion. It's not a pig. It's not a camel. There is no categorization for this thing other than it is horrible, whatever that means. And we'll talk about some of the symbolism in a minute. So we have our four beasts that have come out of the great sea. And in the standard understanding of this, they represent the four metals as seen by Nebuchadnezzar. The great sea represents the Gentiles. And this is all the dominion of the Gentile nations over Israel. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. By the way, that's the third time in Scripture that God's throne is described as having wheels. Ezekiel sees it with wheels, and I believe John does too. I'd have to go back and look at that. But the idea of throne with wheels is kind of interesting. 
Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, that's a million, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, that's a hundred million. And the court sat in judgment and books were opened. In the perspective that this is a mirror for chapter two, you remember in chapter two, you had the stone that was cut without hands that came down and destroyed the statue and expanded and filled the whole universe and so forth. This is the equivalent of that, where God himself judges the empires of the world. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." couple of things. Back here in verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to burn by fire. But the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. What you have then is three of these empires are benign. The fourth one is so dangerous that it has to be put down. You got a pack of wild animals, you scoop them up, and in that pack you got a rabid dog. So you got to shoot the rabid dog, but the rest of the animals you can do something with. So this fourth beast, whatever it is, is so dangerous with like a rabid dog it has to be killed, but the other empires are not. They don't have any more power, you understand. They're not governing empires anymore, but they continue to exist. The other perspective, and by the way, this perspective was in the book by the guy who's a modern documentary hypothesis guy, and I like this very much, is he said, what you have is an echo of Genesis here. Because the empires are depicted as animals, and a man is given dominion. So you have then one like a son of man, which is Yeshua, is given dominion. So you have a man then given dominion over the beasts of the earth. The thing he's developing here is all of this echoes back to Genesis. And certainly there are some things that do echo back to Genesis, and that's one of them, and I like that very much. I'm back in chapter 2, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 44. And this is after Daniel has told Nebuchadnezzar what the dreams are. In 44, so this is part of the interpretation. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be done after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So you can see how 
that particular part of Daniel's interpretation mirrors pretty much exactly Daniel's vision here, where you have a court set up in heaven, judgment is passed by the king of heaven, and then God gives the kingdoms of this earth, the ones that he doesn't have to destroy, to his son to have dominion over, and his kingdom will have no end. So it exactly mirrors chapter 2. Robert Anderson is probably the most famous proponent of that perspective. He lived in the 19th century. He was actually chief of Scotland Yard in Britain. And he was a Bible scholar. He has written several books dealing with the Bible and biblical prophecy and so forth. One of the most famous is The Coming Prince. What I am describing to you as sort of the standard interpretation of these is given in that book. Probably other places too, that just happens to be the one I know. So now we're back in Daniel 7, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. One of whom who stood there. It's got to be the court that is around the heavenly judge. And this again is mirrored in Revelation. Because John turns around and asks an angel, what does this mean? And the angel explains it to him. So the idea then of a prophet in a vision talking to one of the messengers that are around the heavenly throne and asking him, what's going on here? goes all the way back to Daniel here. And then it gets picked up and done again by John in Revelation. So verse 16 again. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him what the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So what the angel says is the beasts represent four kingdoms. And the saints of the Most High, which are Israel, are going to receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So at the end of the time, Israel is going to be restored and Israel is going to be the bureaucratic staff that runs the place under the head of Yeshua. And, oh, by the way, another interpretation of these dreams is Israel was initially supposed to be in this role. But because they screwed up, messed up, went into idolatry, all sorts of other things, it was taken away and given to the Gentiles for a time. That, by the way, is a fairly standard Christian interpretation. I don't agree with that because Israel was never intended to be a nation of kings. They were a nation of priests. And a priest is different than a king. And the nation of priests itself had a king, but David was not intended to be king over all the earth. He was king over Israel, and Israel was then supposed to be priests to all the earth. But again, that's one of the things that you'll see, especially in dispensational circles, that Israel has been put aside, and a place is given to the Gentiles because of Israel's failures and sins, and at some point it's then going to be put back. Verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the forced beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, 
with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Notice that he isn't at all curious about the first three. That doesn't bother him a bit. He doesn't ask, have any questions about that. And by the way, I suspect that that lack of curiosity would be something that people who believe Daniel was written late would say, well, of course he's not curious about that because he knows what happened. Again, I don't find that theory persuasive, but there are places in there where somebody who believed that could certainly try and hang his hat. So, no curiosity about the first three, just about the fourth. And then verse 20, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And again, according to the liberal perspective, this is when the Maccabees ran the Syrians out. I'm now down to verse 23. Then he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. This perfectly matches the career of Antiochus. He's the last of the Seleucid kings, Antiochus Epiphanes, and he did all of that stuff. So he came in, he conquered Israel, He made studying the Torah illegal. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. He erected a statue of Zeus on the altar. And generally, he wore down the saints of the Most High. I mean, he was vicious. I didn't look this up, but I think from the time that the temple was desecrated until the time it was restored was three and a half years. As you all remember your history, the normal business of the Greeks was they would conquer people, but they didn't much care who you worshipped. Antiochus wanted to get everybody in his empire worshipping the same way. Now, the deal, as we've talked about before, in that part of the world at that time, is every nation had its own gods, and if my army conquered your army, that means my gods are stronger than your gods. People would change gods. You get somebody come in and conquer the place and they erected their own temples and so forth. The Greeks didn't particularly care about that, neither did the Romans quite frankly. But Antiochus got this wild hair that he wanted everybody worshipping the same. And of course the Jews were a problem. So what he did is he came in and co-opted Hellenized Jews, secular Jews as we would call them today, and got them to go along with him, and they started harassing the Jews that worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. First thing they did was they desecrated the temple. They had help with that from secular Jews. Then they would send squads of 
soldiers around with an official and they'd go from town to town and they would pick out a prominent man in the town, a local priest, a local mayor, whatever, and they would have him sacrifice to Zeus or to one of their gods. When the lead man in the town did that, everybody else was sort of cowed and followed along. Well, when they got to Modin, which is where John Hyrcanus was, John Hyrcanus said, not only no, but hell no, and grabbed a spear and slaughtered the entire squad. Picked everybody up, ran to the hills, and that was the beginning of the Maccabean Revolt. So from the time of the desecration of the temple, I believe this is correct, until the rededication on the 25th of Kislev is three and a half years. So it took them that long to reconquer the place, run the Syrians out, get the temple rededicated and so forth, and that process took three and a half years. By the way, time, times, and half a time, Aramaic has the concept in its language of a dual. So time times, so one plus two plus half a time. And that second times is, is a dual in Aramaic. And the only vestige of that that we have remaining in English is your idea of a pair. So I have a pair of shoes, that kind of thing. A pair is a dual. So one pair is two. So in this language, times is two. It's a pair, a pair of years, a pair of times. The fact that all of this mirrors what's going on under Antiochus is one of the things that gets people to try and late date Daniel. And when we get down into chapter 8 and 9, where you've got some of the goings back and forth between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, it, it's exact. It's such detail that modern scholars just don't believe that it was written when it says it was written. So let's finish reading the chapter and let's come back and talk about yet the third interpretation. Verse 25 again. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Verse 28, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, if you are of the opinion of the standard perspective of the prince to come and so forth, what you see is this last kingdom having two fulfillments. So yes, all of this happened under Antiochus. But if this is written as prophecy, there is a second interpretation because that last kingdom has not been destroyed and the kingdom of God has not been established. So yes, Antiochus fulfilled some of this stuff, but that last empire then under that theory becomes the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire divides into two halves, the eastern and western, the two legs of the statue, if you will. It has various kings over a period of time. It fragments, and one of the things that's happened under this perspective 
is that the Roman Empire never really went away. It continues to exist. So when Rome itself fell, Rome transferred and we went into, I don't remember the entire history of the Roman Empire, but you had the Holy Roman Empire. You had various peoples within the old Roman Empire try and reconstitute it as a power. And as I said last time, the German Kaiser, well, Kaiser is the German Caesar. The Russian Tsar, well, Tsar is Russian for Caesar. So the idea that various peoples have tried to reconstitute the kingdom, and the kingdom has never formally gone away, under that perspective, Rome just continues to go. You know, it's moved to the United States. If you look at the symbols that the United States have, they look very much like the symbols of ancient Rome. You know, the columns and the eagles and all that kind of stuff. That perspective is things are still going, and that Roman Empire, that fourth beast, has never gone away. Let's talk about that last interpretation. I've heard it before, read it fairly cogently presented this afternoon by a guy by the name of Ken Raggio. Never heard of him before, but he's got a blog where he talks about the whole thing and lays it out very cogently. Under this perspective, this second vision has absolutely nothing to do with the statue. All of the four kingdoms in this second vision are modern. And he goes into why he says that, and I'm not going to go into that in detail. But you have a lion with the wings of an eagle, and he regards that as Great Britain and the United States. So the United States came out of Britain, which means the lion's wings were plucked and the eagle was taken off. The bear becomes Russia. The leopard becomes Germany, and the great beast becomes the United Nations. The four heads on the winged leper are the four Reichs of the German Empire. Remember, the Nazi Germany was the Third Reich. The fourth Reich is the EU, which is under dominion of Germany and France. So you have a leopard with wings. The French symbol is a rooster. So you then have a leopard with wings is the fourth Reich. And then the one, and oh, by the way, under this, all of those continue to exist. So Britain continues to exist. The United States continues to exist. Russia continues to exist. Germany and France continue to exist. What doesn't continue to exist is the United Nations under that interpretation. Now, one of the things that I find persuasive about that, and, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not pushing any of these. I don't know. I'm just laying out as best I can the various perspectives on the book of Daniel. One of the things I find persuasive about this last version is the United Nations is a reconstruction of the Tower of Babel. Remember after the flood, you had... Everybody clumped together, and they started to make a tower. Everybody was in one place on the plain of Shinar. They all spoke one language. They all got together, and they were going to build a tower to invade heaven. Well, the United Nations is a recreation of that same attempt. Get all of humanity together. Get them all under one currency. Get them all under one uh, language. 
get them all under one religion, and heaven will not be able to mess with us anymore. That was sort of the thing with the Tower of Babel. We'll all get together, and heaven will not be able to mess with us anymore. What did God do to the Tower of Babel? Confused their languages and destroyed it. The idea that this fourth beast is so dangerous that it has to be put down as opposed to the other three beasts, which are allowed to continue to live but without having dominion. If you look at the United Nations as a reincarnation of the Tower of Babel, that makes sense. I don't know if any of this is right. I'm not pushing any of this. I'm simply saying that a whole lot of people have studied this for a long time, and I've sort of given you the three major perspectives on the book of Daniel. Perspective number one is the whole thing was written about the time of the Maccabees, and it's talking about history, and the fourth beast then becomes the Seleucid Greeks under Antiochus Epiphanes. That's perspective number one. The least persuasive in my perspective. Number two is Anderson that wrote The Coming Prince. That perspective sees two fulfillments, a historical fulfillment and a yet future fulfillment. And in that one, the beasts are Babylon, Medeo-Persia, Greece, and Rome extended to the end times. Rome never having really gone away, and it just continues to exist and continues to spread. And then, of course, perspective number three is the last one I just gave you, where they're all modern empires. You have Britain, the United States, Russia, and Franco-Germany, and then the United Nations. As I say, the thing about prophecy is it's an indoor sport, and there's no heavy lifting, and anybody can play. It's entertaining, and if this is the thing that interests you about the Bible, by all means, dive into it. I am not speaking down about any of this. It doesn't happen to be my first interest. But understand as you dive into it, people get absorbed in this stuff and they get just testy about it. And boy, if you don't see the rapture the way I see the rapture, we can't be in fellowship. And boy, if you think it was historical and it's not, we can't be in fellowship. Please don't do that. By all means, study it, talk about it, argue about it, have fun with it if that's where your interest lies. But don't get so wrapped up in it that you break fellowship because it isn't worth that. If I were to choose one that I find the most persuasive, I would find Anderson's perspective the most persuasive. But this guy that did modern empires in the United Nations, I mean, he's a thoughtful guy and he lays it out and he makes a good case and he's not stupid. He may be right. It's not worth fighting with anybody about, but if this is where your interest in Scripture lies, by all means, have a great time. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.